Hello, I'm Dennis Smith, and you're listening to Queer and It's Working. Queer and It's Working is a weekly podcast series that interviews people from the LGBTQ community who have found joy in their work. Every week, I'll speak with a relatable role model and ask them about their career and the joy and sense of identity they get from their job. Hopefully, it may inspire you that there are a multitude of careers available to queer people and that you're not alone in figuring out what you should do in life. Hi. Hi. I'm Dennis. Hi. Hi, Dennis. <laughs> So this week's episode of Queer and It's Working, you are my very special guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Sammy Sharif. Um, I'm a psychotherapist. We can start with that. I'm sure we'll get into the details. Okay. So I, I should say that we know each other. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're friends. And I don't know you as Sammy Sharif. Correct. I know you as someone else. But uh, you have decided today to have this pseudonym yes sammy sharif Mm -hmm. can you explain why yes of course um you know there are a couple of reasons one is um i'm a psychotherapist for a lot of vulnerable populations and i don't necessarily want um any kind of easy connection made to me and potentially my clients Mm -hmm. and in addition personally i also would like not to have my family uh, or extended family possibly be affected by um, what's happening or what I talk about um, at all. So it's a way of just adding a layer of protection. Can we just be um, a little bit clear that the anonymity for the family aspect is more so to do with you being queer rather than being a psychotherapist or just being on a a podcast yes. it's because it's Categor- because you're a gay man categorically yes yeah yeah gay cis man don't have much connection to my family in mm-hmm. extended family but in the rare situation it could my queerness might be affecting others and i although personally have no problem with being outed mm-hmm. it's it's those who may be affected that i'm i may impact and i'm not even sure if i would but i would like to protect their safety yeah so, and yeah. we, we, we talked about this a little bit already, and yeah. I thought if someone's going to understand this, it is going to be a, a gay psychotherapist, because <laughs> yeah. what, what you're talking about is protecting your family from this issue of shame. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, is it okay that I said that? Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. I, mean, I think it's a really good, um, I mean, it's much a bunch of things, but it is a social shaming, a social undesirable part of where we'll get into from where where i'm from and where my where my originations are and how mm-hmm. those how those still remain to this day and probably will for the next generation mm-hmm. um, and that does require or it does entail a lot of shame being managed mitigated and, and trying to be released hopefully we talk about that how to, how to how to get rid of it one way of making sure that doesn't create more more is to hide behind safely behind a pseudonym um so yeah yeah i get it should i have a pseudonym then too (laughs) should i not be dennis smith no i think it's fine 
No, but we could come up with something quite nice. Could it, my... It's your it's your podcast, Dan. Dennis, come on. Make but maybe I'm ashamed of my podcast. Okay, I'm officially <laughs> ashamed of the first episode, and my name is Sammy. Sam That's Sharif. your name, <laughs> Sammy Sharif. I'm, I'm Sammy Sharif Junior. Junior, yes, we and are your seniors. Yeah, yeah, we're brothers, and our parents were like, Junior. our parents are called Sammy Sharif. <laughs> Everyone's called Sammy Sharif. <laughs> we're from a long line of Sammy. <laughs> I love it. Well, then, why don't we start your early kind of life? Is this, sure. is this almost a little bit um, annoying, or, you know, being a psychotherapist, you talk to people a lot about their early childhood experiences? Yes. I do. Sometimes I don't. It really depends on the client. My early childhood experiences, it's split into two camps. Um, one is I had a really good childhood up until the age of 11. We had the whole American dream. In Canada. In, that's Canada, it. in yeah. Canada, yeah. So my parents moved in the 60s and were married, had three kids. We had the house, um, we had the backyard, we had the car, we were going to school, we were well-behaved-ish. Mom made three meals a day really good meals. Um, Dad worked all the time to make sure that you could survive and live and grow and prosper. Those are really good years. Mm -hmm. I have no qualms with those years. We had birthday parties. You know, we went to mosque every Friday. It wasn't like a super, super religious thing, but it was really, really nice and communal. Like, it was great. After the age of 11, my life became a little bit of crap. Not to go into too much detail, but enough to say that, you know, my father got sick and then we had to deal care of him. And then we lost the house and we had to move many, many times. And my mom got, my mom was already ill mentally, got worse and worse and worse as I grew older and older and older. And I realized in my twenties that she was not the person I thought she was. And that was, you know, really hurtful and painful and traumatizing. And then I had to like really kind of grow out of that and do that in my twenties. So my upbringing was hot, cold, you know, it was very... Started out great, yeah. had a shitty middle, and then as an adult, I've had my own ups and downs as an adult, but upbringing wise, kind of crap <laughs> uh, overall. There was this real kind of shift before 11 and then after 11. Definitely. Yeah. It's when he had a stroke. So he, he had a stroke and um, he couldn't work anymore and uh, we lost, he couldn't pay the pay the mortgage payments and we didn't, oh, you know, Jesus. and there's probably a lot more details than I, I was like, I was a third child and didn't really know much was going on. And if I did know, I didn't understand it. And so it was very confusing. And so yeah, that was a really good marker of, of a good, good childhood and a bad childhood in a way. Well, I guess, cause before I was 11, I wasn't a teenager technically, I guess, in some ways. And so teenage adolescence was very challenging, um, especially as a queer person, because growing I think I knew I was gay when I was like five or six I knew it was romantic when I was five or six do you what what, what was it at that at five or six that you thought oh I mean five or six I was dating <laughs> you had a boyfriend I had girlfriends but I thought you said you I know oh. I, I knew it was I was oh, attracted like... to others but I was like more attracted to like at, the, at five or six I was like attracted to I don't know. I was a romantic kid. I was like, I was like, that makes sense. Like I was flirtatious. I like liked girls. I was swap. I had game. I knew my first girl, girlfriend's name. I don't think she remembers me and it's fine, but it's like, and then as I grew older, I, I, I switched from women, from girls, from romance with girls to like, oh no, I actually really like boys. And like, okay. And then that, when, I, when that started happening, 
then the sort of like internal like dialogue and shaming and criticizing and like, no, this can't be, you shouldn't have this. That was when it started turning on, but I still had those romantic feelings. You know, at 11, when shit hit the fan in my family, I was like, shit, I have this whole other part of my identity. I have to keep pushing down because I don't want just to add more problems to my life. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 So it's kind of like what you were saying before, really, that you have to have this anonymity. That's such a difficult word to say, isn't it? Yeah. Anonymity. 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 Yeah. You know, because you have to protect people around you. So even though this is something that you're doing now, it's kind of something that's you learn to do. It's literally from the age of eleven, let's say. Yeah. If I was my own client, I would say it was a survival strategy. Oh, totally. Right? Yeah. What is the eleven year old supposed to do when there's no places for public proud displays of male male on male romance mm. i use the word romance specifically because it's not just like i want to have genital sex mm. right i want to fall in love yeah i want to fall in love with boys right and that required me to push that down and that hurt and that still hurts to this day and i as a therapist see my own therapist and really something that i i work on today but it was something like a you know a tween does when mm. you didn't have opportunities for you know it's okay it's fine but it's not okay. It wasn't fine. It was, there was, it was not just because I was queer. It was because my family was like slowly just melting yeah. and breaking down as a system. So why would you add more fuel to the fire? Why would you, why would you add more chaos into your life? And that makes sense as an 11 year old, right? Oh, totally. But I suppose as you are leaving childhood, you know, you're going into your teenage years where they're telling you, okay, now you're starting to become an adult. You're becoming an adult and you've lost uh one of your reliable adults you've lost your father yeah there's there's things that we have to deal with in teenage years that sometimes we need people to help us through it yes was there anyone there to help you through with these kinds of things like what about friends at school or yeah in a weird way my dad was there because one thing, even when we were in our positive years before 11, and even when he was a lot, because he died when I was 16, he was sick when he got 11, but he always emphasized education. He always emphasized school, maybe too much, to be honest. And as tragic as it was that when I was 16, I didn't, finish, I didn't get to finish high school for him to see me finish high school, right? Right. Um, which was a really, it's a really painful thought, but it's also like his kind of last wish desire was always go get more education. And so I spent a lot of time at school, even when he was in the hospital, basically dying. And I, you know, this part of me that regrets that I didn't, wasn't there in the, in the hospital when he was like ill, but it was also like, there's not much we could do. So what I'm trying to say is the figures that were there in the school were the guidance counselors offered. One of the formative aspects of my profession was actually because I spent a lot of time in the guidance counselor's office. Right. Yeah, I had a lot of guidance counselors. I was a good student. I liked school. I liked the structure. It gave me, it, it put, gave me certainty in, from the chaos at home or then not knowing what to do or the financial uncertainty, how we're going to survive, you know. Um, am I a burden to the family, you know, as a, as the third feet, third mouth to feed kind of thing, all this stuff. And, you know, my brother and sister had their own reactions, but, you know, I... And did you have this pressure as well that, okay, my dad's dying. He really wants me to get an education. I have to be 
doing really, really, really I well at school. I, I can't, yeah, I cannot fail more problematic already. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I have to be an A star student. A star student, A enough, like in, in you know, you know, high school in Ontario education system is sorry, education system government Ontario. <laughs> it's pretty shit. Um, so the standards are pretty like easy to be honest, but I did well. Like I, I like I like teachers, teachers like me, I, I was well behaved. I didn't I was voted like to be a prefect at the school. Like I was a very good student. Mm-hmm. And so in doing so, despite my like and I was dating at the time, just I, I again if we're romantic, I, I had a girlfriend, tomboy, I think. I'm not gonna classify her as that, but you you know. No, was she a tomboy? tomboy. In, in my head, yeah. She was she yeah. was more masculine than I was. She played yeah. sports, I didn't. She would jump at you. Or she would jump out of a tree and talk. She was decisive. You. I wasn't. Yeah, like mm-hmm. I, she had a buzz cut. She had no, I think I'm going too far. I don't think long, Tom <laughs> golden hair. She had long, yeah. long I, golden I, hair. I had long golden hair. You did. Okay. Oh. oh my god, this is Rapunzel. I was Ember Rapunzel. Yeah. Okay, you were Rapunzel. I was. You know what the thing is? It's funny because when we talk about that, not queer, but that sexual relationship. It, could be, it wasn't sexual, but it was romantic. I was very much damsel in distress and she picked up on that. And I'm still grateful to this day, whether she wanted to or not, she was vi- her having this romance with me, this teenage, you know, puppy love. It was very much a moment of like, oh, thank you so much for being there for me. And she also like formed her friends around my father's death. And like, I still have the cards my friends gave me. You know, I'm, I'm really religious, but I'm very spiritual. And those moments of friendships that they were just there for me like even now i think i find it very choked up to believe that a 16 year old had friends enough to give a shit right and they didn't didn't say they didn't say anything wrong but they were just there and so the the love was there the romance was there the teachers were there the school system was there you know we talk about in psychotherapy a lot about attachment right and attachment is a it's a a trending or trended word i don't know but you know trauma is not just when you have a disattachment if you want to call it that or unbonding or whatever a relational hurt between mother and father who are there supposed to be there for you. Um, but also at the communal level, right? The, my Indian family, where I'm, where I'm from originally, yes, they were there for me. I will take credit, but they couldn't go the extra mile that I needed. And so the school kind of filled that gap looking back now, right? The school, if, if they wasn't there, I mean, all of my friends, when I tell them my story, like, how are you not like a, and I mean this in the very most gentlest, kindest way possible, how are you not more like, problematized how are you monotraumatized how are you not where's your fourth you know if you know with the studies the fourth adverse childhood event that leads you to more that studies have shown that you know, they lead you to more addictions and problems and issues yeah exactly and people look at certain trauma like this and be like why are you not addicted to drugs on the street and um, to be honest just to, to speak a little bit to that and, and to answer your question a little bit more there was something invisible that kept me going uh let my romantic queerness shine through where i could which was pornography right right with technology at right at his fingertips and for him to i mean this is what i'm trying to say is for him to relieve his stress through his dick mm-hmm. you know um was probably the best strategy and, and were you watching gay porn yeah i was watching a lot i was watching a lot of different porn uh-huh I don't know. I think that's one of the figures, one of the attachment things I was I, I bonded with. The freedom, you know, this this supposed freedom of these bodies, perfect, white, dominant, you know, unreal bodies that were essentially trying to be saviors to me. And because mm. you know, it, it, that's where that's where I felt free in my body, right? The embodiment of the process of, of 
of feeling like in my body that I felt free and like ease and relaxed. And this is, that, that is exactly where my pornography addiction, which I struggle with today, mm-hmm. still, still arises. Yes, it's not as much as I have tools. Yes, I've grown, but it's still part of me. And so when people are surprised, like, how do you not survive? I'm like, well, you know, there are not a lot of things I talk about that I don't, don't need my clients or my friends to know. I do think, and I, I know it's not answering your question directly, but I do think pornography was one of those figures. It was an attachment figure, right? Well, it was uh, something I used to get through, the, get through more of those years. I can totally understand that because of a lot of people's situations, especially um, gay men. You know, I'm a gay man as well, yeah? The idea that you can't tell your family that you're gay, that this is kind of going on in your head. You're not necessarily making it obvious at school because you don't want to have your life, I don't know, be slightly worse than what it already is. You're just trying to keep a low profile. If you're watching gay porn, it's almost like the reassurance that you're looking for as a young gay person. Be like, this is normal. And actually, it's freaking hot. Look at this. Look at this. You know, you'll be doing this in a few years or something like that. And you're like, okay, so I just need to wait until I'm an adult and I'm going to be having sex like this. You know, obviously we know now as adults that not to be true, it's a total fantasy and kind of constructed and heavily produced and stuff like that. But I do see it as being like more than... um, this endorphin comfort that you're getting obviously yeah. by masturbating and yeah. ejaculating you're getting all the lovely sort yes, of for sure. chocolate and just endorphins running <laughs> from your prostate I outside that. your I yeah. That in my seriously yeah, yeah. 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 It's, it's nature's chocolate isn't it yeah, coming from the prostate yeah um but it's telling you look you're you're fine being a gay person as well because this right. this exists it's super validating you know, if, if I, again, if I was a client in my office and we're talking about an addiction, if, if that's what you call it, I don't like to use the word addiction, but I think it's, I think it's a substance. Yeah. My, my therapist doesn't like it either, I mean, but I like it. I mean, labels, we can get to labels, but yeah. you know, the use of the substance, the substance itself is not an issue. Pornography is not a problem. Why do, what meaning did it give me? What was the benefit? This is what I ask myself in my own therapy. And this is what I ask my clients when they bring their so-called addictions to me. It's not the cocaine. It's why you're using it. It's not the marijuana. It's not the alcohol. It's not the nicotine. It's not, it's not the eating. It's not the sex. It's always about what does it mean? What's the benefit? And how, what is the um, urge, that you're, the compulsion that you are trying to solve mm-hmm. through the use of whatever the thing is? And so I think definitely that pornography was an attachment figure for me. Mm-hmm. Where my parents were not, right? And I've... My, parent, my parents weren't able to validate my, my homosexuality in general. There was no time. There was no, my mom's mental health had to be managed. My father's illness had to be managed. His death after that, his absence of that, his grief had to be managed. We didn't have time to talk about getting married or whatever. We didn't have time to discuss. Mm-hmm. I had to get a job. I had to work. I had to figure out how to get through university on, on loans. Who's going to talk about it? I had to, get to, I had to travel like three hours a day to get to school. It's a lot. So why not at two o'clock in the morning when you're, when you're trying to study for a calculus exam, get off on porn, which again and again is a useful way of managing the anxiety or distress. So did you realize quite like in your teenage years that you had 
certain issues in your life that you need to work out later? Like, were you in the process of becoming your first client? <laughs> no, but really, were you? Because I do wonder a lot about this with therapists, psychotherapists. Yeah, I do think a lot of psychotherapists, psychologists, whoever you want to call them, psychological service providers, mental health professionals, mm -hmm. do go into it at some level to gain some sort of insight into themselves. That would be weird not to. I, I think maybe your question, Dennis, is like, when did it happen for me? Or like, how? Yeah. Let's pretend I'm really good at asking questions. So just answer <laughs> the question. You asked. The thing is, you asked the question perfectly. I'm just making sure I, I, I have a response. I think there was, a, there was many moments where I realized I was my own client. It was a very, very good question. It's very astute. Is, you know, in university, I was like, okay, I like psychology. I like, the way, I like the way people think. But before I went to university, the reason why I liked studying the mind was a very categorical early childhood memory. And it was simply this. We were sitting in our family suburban home in Canada and uh, we were having dinner. My mom had made this like an amazing meal. And I just remember we were eating in silence, all three of us, all five of us, whatever. And I just remember, it's been emotional even now because we, we were, I, I, was, I, I remember looking up, looking around at all four of us, I'm the main fifth person, and being like, this food is so damn we need to like praise this woman. Like in my head, I was like, this isn't, this has to be acknowledged. This has to be praised. That whatever, I don't even know what we're eating. But I remember that moment so vividly, like, and how happy I was as a child, like family, food, but we were silent as fuck. And that's the moment I recognized I can perspective take, where we talk about this a lot in psychology. I can pull out from the, from this, from the space and kind of have a kind of a, objective fourth dimension kind of lens and look upon a, a system of group of people and say, what's going on here? What are the motivations and dynamics here? That was a moment that I think that became a psychology oriented person. Then you go, you skip, skip to university. What do I do as a psychology degree? Not much. Sometimes I think I have that too, but I don't know if it's like, I feel I'm psychologically standing outside of my body and you know I always think I'm psychic <laughs> I always think I'm psychic I'm always thinking oh I do have this feeling of like oh something is happening here yeah and I'm aware of it I don't know what it is but because I'm aware of it I'm going to be gentle in this situation correct because I That's have it. to I'm not it's gonna like that push we're talking about. yeah meditation awareness of awareness Okay. And that's what the moment I realized, what is awareness of awareness? It's like a psychological state, right? Yeah. And that can be useful. It can also be very dangerous. Could this almost be like a predisposed talent I that know. you could have to become a psychotherapist? It could. It would, I mean, I just remember, and I think, yeah. but I do think that was the moment I realized I need to be doing something in, psycho in, in the world of the mind. I didn't have answers to why my, my brother and sister, my, my dad, my mother didn't say anything about how amazing we were that night. But I just remember doing that. I remember being aware and being like, no one's saying anything to this woman who just spent probably like two days making this wonderful food. And mm -hmm. in, in her aloneness, which we can get into, but like, you know, that, that was the moment where I realized I've got a skill for observing, being aware of awareness, and then asking questions through that. And that's what I bring to my clients often is that level and that, that was before all this shit had found right that was that was really a, a cherished childhood memory talent skill whatever you call it attitude i don't know yeah it's fabulous yeah can we talk then a little bit about did you 
go straight to university after high school to study psychology? Yes, I went. Yes, technically, yes, I did. I went right into a biology degree uh, in one of the most prestigious schools in Canada. Yeah, that's where I started my my interest. I I, I graduated from a neuroscience degree. What was the prestigious school? Was it the Niagara Falls School of Amazing Biology? Yeah, that one. I don't know any universities in... in, uh... I'm sure we could look it up later. Ah, oh, they have a wing named after you, don't they? Okay, we still have to protect this anonymity. A little bit. I'm speaking with Noam Chomsky at the moment. (laughs) Sorry, Noam. (laughs) You still teach at MIT, right? (laughs) And no one knew that you had Indian origins. (laughs) Factoring consent. I love it. I love it so much. Okay, prestigious school. And the natural thing, because I went to a very science-oriented school, was like to go to do science degree. And, you know, to be honest, the reason why I went to university is because my friend was like, just go with the flow. And that's why I went to university. And to be honest, I hated university. I hated the school. I hated, I hated the whole experience of it. it was, I was not ready to be an independent learner. I wasn't good. I wasn't good at any of that. I was not ready to pre university and I didn't do well um, because of all the other things that are happening in my life. I just didn't have that world at all. Are you out at this point at university? Still very much closeted, but I was starting to explore. So the shittier thing that happened in university, I had the horrible experience of having to admit my mother to hospital. Oh, gosh. Yeah, during university. And so I, long, traumatizing story short, um, I moved out in my middle of the university. And when I moved out and was separate from my, my mother and her and family, um, why well, I wasn't moved out. I was kicked out. It's very confusing. It doesn't even matter. The point is, basically, then is when I started to explore my queerness. And I was on Craigslist. If you all know what Craigslist was like before... I think I know this. Craigslist was fun. This is where you would sell like your sofa. Yeah, Craigslist was basically like a classified section, but online. Yeah, they and the UK they call it Gumtree. Yeah, I'm sure there's equivalents across the world, and it's very bare bones. And um, I think they don't do the personal ads anymore because of human trafficking, whatever. But at the time, it was the best way for closeted. I met a lot of people who were closeted on Craigslist in Toronto. But it would all be anonymous too, wouldn't it? Um, like, would you yes. upload pictures? I will not so. confirm or deny, but yeah, you know, like that's how I that's how I explored, right? Like, right. I, I didn't go to bars or clubs that probably were more gay oriented in the late two thousand, early two thousand, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have the option to like really. I had to filter people through. Are you closeted? You had to date other closeted guys. I, I had to because I didn't have a chance to do that. And I, and I, and this, you know. I, uh, and I also did this under the radar of being Muslim. You know, at some point I was like, you know, the question made my rise. Did you have, what did I do with the Muslim and the gay thing? And I was like, I'm just a romantic person. And I don't really care if I'm Muslim or gay. I just like to be romantic with folks. Some of it wasn't romantic. Some of it was very rough and like very, very uh, you know, rumbling through the sheets. But it was also sometimes really lovely to meet some people who were, in similar boats as I am, and you know, not Muslim, maybe Sikh or Guyanese or whatever, and you know, other other people who are, you know, white, Caucasian, Filipino. I met so many people. It was probably like the best, weirdest way of exploring my sexuality in the closet world. Yeah. And so that was kind of how I started exploring my queerness during university. And did that help in fact me being a psychotherapist? Maybe, maybe not. It did it did I didn't meet a lot of other queer queer uh, and trans Muslims. 
um, through that. And that was fun. From going on Craigslist and meeting people to have sexual and romantic experiences with, um, but they're also being anonymous, just like you. Again, you're getting this kind of validating experience that what you're doing is fine. You're still kind of protecting. Yes. Um, I suppose people connected to you at home. So or, yeah. 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 It's still, it's still doing it today. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Even at this time, you're protecting yourself because, okay, you're not out at school. You're not out at home. You're not out with your friends. I wasn't out. I had a lot of Muslim friends and I wasn't out to them. Yeah. Okay. So real kind of protection yeah. strategy. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it was weird because when I moved out, I actually moved out with people who were Muslim, like religious Muslims. Okay. And I was religious, whatever, acting, I guess you can call it that. But I was very much like, you know, Islam is nice. It's not going to be my religion. It has given me a lot of spiritual values. I think it actually has informed a lot of my queerness rather than like exclude me from it. And that was a lot of formative years to be like, you know, you can be both and not have to like entertain natural and you know, human uh, ideas of suicide, right? That was that was literally like, the option is I'm not gay or I die. And I was told that by Muslims, right? Like if I, I heard other other university students say, if I, was, if I was gay, I would kill myself. And you know, when you hear that, it's like, well, should I kill myself? And I just, you know, listen, I listened to that romantic five-year-old boy me who was like, I just like to love. That is what I harp on is that that young boy was very wise as children are. Right, they're very clairvoyant. Yeah, I don't, I don't believe this. Usually, imam with a beard who has never experienced the world and traveled and talked to nine billion people and said, "Yeah, we should murder, kill, and stone Muslim queer people." I don't, I actually don't think they believe it. They just say the words, but they don't actually like believe it. And so, I mean, the other painful thing is that I don't think my dad would probably agree. I don't think he'd actually be okay with this. And then I was like, you know, and, you know, I've done this in therapy where you do a lot of, you know, two chair work, you talk to your father, you, you know, you're on this conversation. And I do think that there's more compassion, love, understanding. I mean, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim is the first line of the Quran. It's said 113 times. Most compassionate, most merciful. And a lot of training right now, a lot of psychotherapy training right now, it's about compassion training and mindfulness training on that. And a lot of like mantras and prayers about may I be, may be safe, may I be, all this stuff is really what, what is a cornerstone of my practice as a psychotherapist, cornerstone as a person. And what got me through those years, um, essentially, it was Islamic faith and spirituality. So I wasn't, as much as I was hurt by a lot of things people may have been doing, systems and cultures and social pressures and oppressions, mm-hmm. I think there, I think whatever resiliency part of me, which I and I encourage any other person to rely on, we all have it. This will, to, this felt sense of to, to live and grow and be and, and create and change, is what I rely on. I have faith, if you want to call it that. Did that answer your question? <laughs> <laughs> I did have faith, but I also like. Did you love yourself at this time? You know, I, um. Because it seems like from what you're saying... I love aspects of myself. I love being a nerd. That you yeah. you had a lot of acceptance. Mostly. I also had a wonderful high school guidance counselor, who I won't name, um, who's with me today um, still. Where is she? 
She's she's in Canada. No. And she, she's locked she's locked herself in the bathroom. She's 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 not here right now. But she's she's with me in the sense that she's she's an, uh, a senior and she's she's she modeled the way for me. She's doing her PhD now and she's in her like 70s. That's fine. She's learning about neoliberal we have, we have neoliberal capitalism conversations. And when I when I spoke to her then she's she asked me and she's a blunt woman. She's not very like very like tough love and she's like how can you believe that you're the only queer muslim in the world how can you believe that mm. absolute thinking right we talked about this in therapy how could you believe that you're a smart kid mathematically that makes no sense so i had people who helped me test the reality of my beliefs mm. yes there was a lot of self-hatred which is whole another conversation but that was not necessarily because i hated being gay it's because i hated being told how bad it was being gay and, I, and for some reason i could distinguish the two this this me not liking me being gay is not me. It is a society telling me to believe that. And again, that that's predicated on this belief, the, that awareness skill that I had when I was over like six or seven or nine at the dinner table, where I was like, I can look, I can zoom in and zoom out of of, of, of social dynamics and be like, something else is happening here. There's a thing called culture, right? There's a thing called systems. There's a thing called uh, society that inculcates and, and breeds these shitty thoughts to make people feel like depression and anxiety and, and self-isolation hatred. So, yeah, I think I totally, like, was able to use this talent. If you, you said, that, oh, fine, I'm talented. <laughs> like, I, I definitely think I had the skill to, like, some part of me know that what I'm, what I'm feeling, thinking, or being is not wrong because it's based on love, right? This inherent childlike love. Yeah. So you want to gallivant? I'd love to gallivant. Because the, um, you got vodka on my laptop. How did you go from studying psychotherapy to becoming a therapist mm. then today? I studied neuroscience in university. I had that, I guess, innate talent. And then, you know, I actually didn't think about becoming a psychotherapist because once I was finished uni out of the house, um, I was working basically in many kind of supportive roles. So student advising, community agencies, that kind of thing. And then because I was working um, for a place where they would pay for my education, I basically got into a psychotherapy program. Right. Because it was basically free. So that's why I went. <laughs> because it was cost It was cost neutral. And um, well, I it was free. It was, it, was, it was very low cost because I had to pay for my books and stuff. But... I, I found it very easy to, I, I, I already had an interest of helping and supporting folks, helping them through leadership and communication and teamwork and, you know, policies and programs and this kind of thing. Mentorship, these are, these are things that are formative of, for my supportive roles. And then when I realized a lot of my own experiences of mental health and that of others in uh, educational systems and edu in community agencies were maybe 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 benefit from my identity and my experiences the shift to become a psychotherapist came really easy and it was really nice to hear from like my friends and some, some of my friends and some of my colleagues like yeah you you listen very well you'd be great at this you'd be great at this try it and I'm like great I love listening and I think there was something about the moment where you realize and I guess this goes back to the memory of like me, me being aware of where it's listening is I'm a really super hyper listener. I'm very quiet, but I'm observing, I'm listening. It's a very much skillful thing. And that's why it was like, okay, maybe I should. Even at observing the silence at a young age. Yeah. Why is everyone silent? Why is everyone silent here? Mm. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, so you did this program. Does the program have a particular name? It's a master's in psychotherapy. Okay, a master's in psychotherapy. Yeah. Yeah. And how long did that last? I did it part time. So it was like three years. And during this, you already have started to have clients? No. Well, I did a practicum in those three years, I think. And that was when I worked at a higher education institution. And at this point in your university yeah. career, because you said that uh, your undergraduate bachelor's, you didn't enjoy so much, you're starting now to enjoy it. You're starting to love what you're becoming. Yeah, correct. Because I think what I was recognizing in myself that my university years were a lot about research and becoming a, like a person who reads, writes proposals to stats, that kind of thing. And I was like, I guess I can see myself doing that. But it's dry and it's boring and it's really like sitting at a desk. And I'm, I'm sitting and listening, but it feels different. And so, um, yeah, I shifted to more applied, say. I moved to a more applied uh, use of the psychological knowledge. What, what is the use of knowledge if it's not being applied and supporting people through what we know, right? Which is we get to, we get to evidence-based research and practices. We get to lived experiences and we get to these kinds of um, modalities, approaches, orientations, that I was like, you know, I would, I would like to make sure that like, you know, as you say, I can be a person who can take all this knowledge that I've been gaining from my lived experience and this weird educational system and offer it to someone who's vulnerable and needs it for free or at no cost. So then I started also volunteering in counseling agencies that were for people with low income and um, in the court systems and people who couldn't afford. And I miss that. I, would do, I, I have some pro bono clients right now, but you know, it's hard if you're not fully tenful. I mean, I, I, I could have worked with an agency. I wish I did, but um, other things happened that led me not to work for uh, NGOs but, and move into private practice. But yeah, so yeah. Are, are you starting to get a stronger sense of your identity during this period too? Like, I, I assume that you're still closeted at this point as well? Um, of when I started doing the my master's, when I started... Uh, During your master's, yeah. Yes, I was closeted to my family, but not my friends. So if anyone asked, I wouldn't, probably they would know. Mm -hmm. My friends knew. My friends had an idea. But my friends never really cared. <laughs> my friends were never, like, bothered. Yeah. Um, I never had... But you're... Uh, sorry. Uh, but your uh, identity is starting to come out. You know, you're starting to find your feet and what you want to do professionally. You find something that you're really interested in and yeah. that you're enjoying. And you're starting to admit to the people around you, even if they are just friends, not family. Yeah. This is who I am. So yeah. you're, you're starting to get a better idea of who you are. Do you think yeah. because you started to open up a bit more and you were accepting more of yourself yeah. that you were like I say this feels right I should be a psychotherapist or do you think those yeah. two things are connected like we get a sense of identity from what we do professionally I think you're I think you're talking about something we learned actually in career counseling okay which is fit you know your trait and fit theory there's a theory out there where like you know how do you how do you match someone to a career how do you match someone to a job and I do think what you just said is like, I figured out my identity, my values. I was learning settling on them. And one of them was being aware of being aware, listening, being capable of, of doing that type of thing. And then, and then hearing from context, hearing from environments where I got the feedback to say, hey, you're doing, you're doing a good job at this. I definitely believe that my queerness 
opened that skill, that talent of being aware, being aware, and then was like, how do I use this to have and bond with other queer people in a way that felt productive? Does that make sense? And so then I'm like, psychotherapy is for me. And then I met the queer therapists and I met other queer counselors and social workers and psychologists and psychiatrists and other people. And then I, and then I got, you know, I started meeting, um, there's a, uh, I won't name them right now just because again, I want to make sure there's some space between me and my, my communities, but there's a mindfulness group in Canada that I really much attuned to. And a lot of them are, you know, not just queer, but like, you know, people of color and trans people and people of difference and, and, Caucasian and whatever and there's a sense of being within a community of psychotherapists who are very the word open is wrong but like who share the identities of oppression oppressed identities and how that can be skillful right how 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 those lived experiences can allow for resiliency skills be and, and then and then be resourceful for the community right and then be useful for as a profession through the same my, my case psychotherapy Mm -hmm. right or counseling or advising or coaching or whatever you want to call it and that's where I think I connected like oh I can do this part of being queer do this part of this innate quality in me in this profession and oh my god I get paid for it mm. but bonus capitalism right like that was kind of where things kind of aligned and it was never for me like a passion thing people can call well you're passionate about being you know aware observing like, I, I think it was just something that I always was able to do Maybe because I was the third, the, the third kid, the fifth member of the family. Maybe because I always kind of took a more observative role as, a, as an introverted person. Maybe I, I just naturally thought this way, or I had a very early, early thing of thinking of thinking, right? Which is often a very problematic thing. People don't like to ruminate too much, and that's kind of dangerous. But mine was kind of helpful, and I applied it to people's experiences of like being trans or homeless. You know, the people don't choose to be homeless. They do these identities being trans and homeless. They're just, they're just um, markers for their true selves. And this is where I think my true self came up and it matched, it fixed the category of being psychotherapist. To be honest, I think this is a really kind of important point because I know from my perspective, I wonder if I would still be a teacher because I'm, I'm not a teacher anymore because I didn't feel there was a lot of I didn't feel safe being queer and being a teacher and then I had an issue where it was some students were told that I was queer and then they said they didn't want to have a gay teacher right and it just felt really kind of shitty yeah so I have wondered about this you know with people who do love their jobs and maybe if you are a teacher and you love your job does there have to be some form of acceptance for you being a queer person as well? Like, do you not have to be kind of out and a bit proud because then you get to be yourself? I know there's obviously levels of professionalism. You know, you're not being Sami Sharif at the club and the same Sami Sharif, you know, sitting in your office. office. Sure, yeah. 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 I get that. I get that. But yeah. there's definitely a lot of crossover. They're not. They're not completely two different people. There's a Venn diagram where right. both exist at the same time. Right. Um. So, do you think that's one of the reasons why you came to love your job as a psychotherapist? Because you said it. It didn't necessarily start as a passion, but it was something that you were told that you were good at. 
you were getting positive reinforcement yes. from your from your friends, your peers, and from your superiors. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you're being told you're allowed to be different. You're allowed to be yeah. queer. Mm -hmm. And because of that, you have great experience to help other people. Is it integral to you loving your job that, you know, that you're accepted and you're living uh, a life where you are gay, Sammy Sharif, right. the psychotherapist? It is integral. It, the, word, the word you just use, integral, is really key. Because we want to, I mean, my goal in my practice and my goal in, our, in my life, and hopefully maybe for you, is we want to be integrated whole people, right? I don't want to be semi-sharif, the therapist that's not gay as the therapist. Or I don't want to come home as not the therapist, but just be gay at home. I don't want to do all this identity management. Uh, I don't know what the technical term is, but I read somewhere that you can call it code switching. Something like that, right? Definitely code switching. But when the practice of psychotherapy is such a liberal one, I would suggest, maybe I'm wrong, it allows for, especially in the in metropolises of Toronto, uh, Canada, Toronto, and New York, you know, all these places of North America, you are embraced. If I went on to become an academic in psychology, sure, my queerness may be a, of interest, but most of them, I mean, I think it's in most industries and most, most sectors of any kind, it's usually some straight white male, usually. And I mean, the most straight white male person we know in psychotherapy is Freud. I mean, he's not the be all and end all. People, a lot of like, neuroscientists when they went in uh, and psychologists and they start talking about psychotherapy fall onto these these big people but you know something in me said they're just one man yeah. right and this field of psychotherapy of the human mind is nine billion minds and we're going to rely on like freud and Jung. and there's still a lot of publications and theories and modalities that are based on white Western male models of psychotherapy and psychology. And where I'm from in Canada, this is, has to be and will be changing with the truth and reconciliation of, our, of the First Nations, Indigenous peoples, which is a whole other conversation, but that's an integration that we must be working towards so, in any field. Are you, are you saying that psychotherapy is going to develop or it's really going to make progress whenever we have people from different experiences different ways of life, different races, different sexualities, you know, coming into this um, professional sector to add their piece to the ingredients to make this, I don't know. Yes. Yeah. To yeah. Add, really? to add and elevate. Okay. I mean, how much, and I think my queerness has definitely given me this option. I, I could have been my queerness as sublimation and subjugation and should be, should be pushed aside and, and marginalized. I could, I could have thought about that as a psychotherapist, but that's a horrible, a horrible thing to do to someone in, in, in any profession. But when we think about it, like it, mathematically, it doesn't make sense that we were modeling, putting all this, this, this phenomenon of psychology and trauma and help and growth and change and thriving on a few models of white people's research. And I may be wrong about this, but I really believe that we have indigenous communities who have been who have been knowledge about knowledgeable about the mind and the earth, which we've been coming down to for many, many in the recent years about. I mean, I'm very much inclined to, as much as I love my Islamic traditions and, and, and values, the Buddhist principles that I often rely on and for my existential questions have been sorted 5,000 years ago. The Abrahamic religions are limited. And 
this is a question of our of our next generation. If we ever got through the climate change crisis, and I mean this COVID thing, this would be my my suggestion as something that we need to start integrating from. How do we include um, people called the global south or you know developing nations and their psychology, their healing practices, their culture, their growth, their changes? That is required for our world to become more compassionate and growing and changing economically and emotionally. So I I do think there needs to be a shift and who's going to do the shifting or how, I don't know, but that's why I believe in this, in this field of psychotherapy as a place for my, for me and my identity to grow and for that of others and to challenge some really shitty dominant cultural perspectives. Mm -hmm. I would like to just talk about, so you have, Indian heritage, yeah. Both both of your parents came from India. They, they moved to Canada. Yes. Um, so is there anything about your appearance that has held you back in your career? Uh, or created any obstacles in your career? It's very easy to say this, so I'll say it. So being a person of color, being brown-skinned, is very much a, a challenge in a white-dominated field, especially with women, because like therapy is usually with white women. Mm-hmm. Not always, but quite often nowadays. Challenge to be, you know, making sure I'm not being too masculine to over speaking and then also being like, well, I'm a queer person, so I have a voice to say. It's a lot of math, social gymnastics. You know. It's all of this code switching, yeah. isn't yeah. it? Okay, yeah. what do I have to be to fit in with these yeah. white women psychotherapists? Yeah. What's acceptable to them? Yeah. So, yeah, so you're not really being yourself. It's, it's, I've been learning to get better at it. I mean, there's a way to be respectful, loving, kind, and I can do that while respecting, loving, kind in myself and my identities, my parts. And being Indian, you know, there's a part of me that thinks that maybe being a psychotherapist would not be something like that my father would validate. My mom knows that I'm a psychotherapist and she gets it kind of um, because she also saw some counselors for some time and she's like, okay, I guess I guess that's good. She's very happy that I got education. No, that, that was enough. She's, her master's just like, great, that's enough. But like, when I go to spaces, I often wonder, you know, I really thought you were going to say when I go to space. <laughs> when should, I go to what? space and counseling in Mars? Yeah, for sure. I would love to do counseling in Mars. Aliens? Oh my God. I'm so sorry I interrupted you, but... Uh, no. Space? You said you, that you didn't go to space. <laughs> when I go to spaces, <laughs> yeah, I often have to do some of this mitigating. It's also that of experience, right? There's so much research in psychotherapy of saying, you know, this, this method is better and this method is better and CBT and EMDR and all these lingos I won't get into, but like, you know, this is really problematic, but it's also like when I go to the trainings for these things and I'm like, where is the queer representation? Where is the trainer who's, who's a person of color? Where is the conversation for the trauma of whiteness and white supremacy? It doesn't exist most part. And, you know, I've been, I've been also going to, I, I've heard and I've been told from other people of color who are training, other people in decolonizing, you know, trying to, you know, trying to get rid of these, this idea of whiteness, because I don't speak like a Indian English, right? I have a different accent. People get disarmed by that. And so then they hear like, well, you're a colonized body. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do with that? What am I supposed to do with that? I'm second, I'm second generation from India, but I have a thousand generation of India, Indian ancestry behind me. Th- like thousands why are we not talking about your white ancestry never having to discuss your th- like I, I don't know my grandparents I'm sure and I don't mean this I mean this gently to Dennis and to other psychotherapists who are white you could probably figure out your ancestry you know your tree right? that does play a role in my confidence in being a psychotherapist 
it does play a role of me wanting to pursue more of this profession because it will always be someone who has more information and knowledge just because of their ancestry. Um, CBT uh, founder, um, I think he recently passed away, I forget his name, and then, you know, there's, there, then the daughter or someone has also taken up the flag of being the next person, expert in the area. I, you know, if I were to propose a new based research, I'd have to go through hoops and loops and dupes of all these things to propose, hey, maybe there is the way the, I'm, I'm going to get this wrong, but there is a queer trans uh, identity in, 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 in the India of uh, the, oh, I'm going to get this wrong, the mudras who are basically trans, I mean, it's, it's a really awful translation, cultural translation, but they're, you know, they're not, they are non-binary, they're trans, they're, they, they live a different gender expression, and they have a right to be participating in psychotherapy or psychology. Where is their voice? I'm not saying I'm going to bring it to them. I'm not going to say I'm that person. But we need to, as, 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 as a culture and community of people, include the many different voices that exist. And I struggle with that sometimes in North American context. And this is probably why I benefit from being in private practice rather than working in an institution. I don't work, I don't have office politics. I don't have to work with a manager who, who has to tell me to shove up some clients. I get to work with who I want to work with. And I think there's power in that. So there's definitely um, a balancing act yeah. that you have to do as a psychotherapist because you want to speak with people that necessarily don't get the option to speak with a psychotherapist but you also want to speak with the what's what's the typical example of a a psychotherapist patient is it like the white picket fence uh suburban housewife i mean that's what i I don't that's like that that's like the 1960s yeah that's the 90s i think i think more and more men and trans people and are 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 entering into psychotherapy hopefully for the reasons of um, psychological growth and healing. Uh, I think the model has changed, but I do think the identity politics has played a role in people who pick their therapist, which is why I became a therapist, because it doesn't seem like to be many people of color, queer people who are. And I, oh, do you think you're definitely cho- chosen less because you're a male and... I'm chosen and less because of that, but I'm also chosen more because people who are queer, trans, Muslims, or, or different want, want a support nowadays, especially in Canada. Okay. For for that kind of representation in their in their therapist and that kind of lived experience in their therapist, um, that definitely plays a role. In my but that. is that is that not good? It's like yeah, you're yeah. fighting yeah, yeah. you're, you're, oh, fi- yeah. you're finding you're finding the best the it's best good. person that can help you. I, whenever, but let me tell you, whenever I see a call or consult from a straight white male or straight white female, it doesn't last long. Oh really? And why? I don't, I can't answer that question. You have to look at the research for that. But I, I think there's some level of like, we don't share the lived experience. We don't have the same connection based on our, our unconscious identities, right? Yeah. And that, that that could be based on you being queer. Yeah. Okay. And th- all of the things that make up your identity. But we should also say that um, whenever you go to a psychotherapist, they usually kind of advise that maybe it's not going to work between us, and that's also fine. You might need to see five psychotherapists before. You yeah, I always talk around for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you want to have this good fit, the good vibe. There's a, there's a lot of not explaining, right? That my queer Muslim clients don't have to do with me. And right. That adds ease, comfort, and and confidence in the in the relationship, right? Of course. As as, as well as whiteness, there's also a lot of whiteness. Although I feel very colonized, I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Right, and so. They probably want that comfort. I'm assuming 
that makes it easy for them to feel comfortable in talking about through their things. Like, I probably would have a reaction if like some white you know, middle-class woman was like, you know, has this really glorious life. And I'm like, I mean, I can, I can support them. There's no problem. But the thing is, I probably would have some what they call transference. I'm like, okay, this woman has like some privilege. Her, her stress and anxiety aren't, aren't enough or whatever. That, that might come up as a thing for me to work on in my supervision. But that's definitely something I think clients might consider as they become more aware of what psychotherapy is for. Because you need to talk about that. We need to discuss as a culture, community, why psychotherapy exists and why we use it and why we shouldn't use it and why, why it's a normal and useful thing especially with queer Muslims or South Asian Muslims or people of like people of color and psychotherapy relationship. Like it's very rare for most cultures of, of difference to want to go to a third person for support if it's not an imam or some spiritual leader. And that's a whole other conversation. But typically that's that's where psychotherapy doesn't I mean I mean if I told my mom I went to see a psychotherapist as a, as a kid, she'd be like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Just pray five times a day. There's no, there's no, like, so there's, there's a cultural thing there that we can probably get into, but I, oh, I mean, it's a little bit separate, but yeah, I think that we should be a little bit concerned about how people match themselves with their therapists based on identities and whether that's necessary or not. But mostly it's only in the hands of the client and that's usually a much more beneficial place to leave that be. Can I say that you're quite happy where you are in your career at the moment as a psychotherapist? Or is there something that you really want to achieve in the near future? Yes, categorically, I think. I, w- I mean, I wouldn't tell 10-year-old Sammy that this would be his life. I think he would be very... I'm doing a RuPaul question, right? What would you tell... <laughs> oh, do we have a picture of him? Do we have a picture of me? I think I could pull one up, but he, like, you know... Wearing a tutu? Uh, he's probably wearing a Canada shirt because his uncle gave him one. Yeah, I'm very kind of, the thing is what I'm, I will say, yes, there's some no. I'm very happy where I am. I never, I, I'm, I never thought I would be able to practice online, virtually, doing therapy, um, listening and being paid for it, supporting people through challenges, right? People often think psychotherapy is a place where you talk about problems, but it's also where you solve them. It's also where you develop the skills to address them, hopefully with someone else's support. And I'm so proud i guess but i'm also kind of like surprised i won't say like oh my god i actually i'm actually this age doing this this well-regarded profession in a way that seems sustainable and somewhat like i i can see my growth in it right i can be a supervisor i can do trainings i can you know write articles it can be something kind of i can grow into this role the part that i i do miss i will say is working for an institution that basically pays you a salary (laughs) Because okay. being an entrepreneur, being in your own private practice, you are developing a skill of being an entrepreneur. And that's not part of my identity. I don't think I'd never, I never thought about that as part of me. And I think most psychotherapists, I mean, I would love if I could work for an institution, but there is so much building of a, of a part of me in being a private practice practitioner. And that's fun, but it's really challenging to be both CEO, CTO, CFO, president, secretary, you know, <laughs> um, would the ideal situation be like part time in an institution and part time being your own boss with your own clients? A lot of people do that. A lot of people try to do that as well because then you have a salary, you have benefits, and I have to, I have to, I have to put in my own benefits, right? So, mm-hmm. on holidays and stuff like that. So, but I, I mean, I do get to work on my own. I don't have to commute to work. I mean, not only because I virtual, but all of your clients are online. Almost always, yeah. Mm. There are a few here in person, but it's not the standard. I was wondering about uh, routine. 
I think routine is really necessary for us to be able to achieve what we want to do in life, to use our time well. And maybe it's something that we didn't really learn in childhood. We have to kind of learn in adulthood. With your job as a psychotherapist, do you think routine is really integral to you being good at your job? Do you think it's necessary? Yeah, I also would argue a little bit against that. What I mean to say is I do think I have a real uh, issue with the word discipline, but I, I do think routine, regularity, normalcy is necessary to feel stable and safe and comfortable. But I also think that as a psychotherapist, one of the biggest things we learn early on in our education, hopefully, is self-care is super important. And sometimes like routine sounds like not spontaneity. It sounds very certain. It sounds very structured and that's good. But my favorite days of the week are when I have no plans. I have no routine. I have no rituals. I have no, I can just decide things. That's, this is for me, right? Like this is my way of feeling energized, recharged, nourished. And so for me, I think there are definitely, uh, it's a, it's, I don't know the word balance, like an integration of noticing when I have to be like at work and my desk doing things, be productive, making sure I'm getting my case, my case notes and my client's supervision, training, readings, all that stuff. But also having just a little time to be like, watch dumb Netflix or going for a walk and not having a destination or, you know, having dinner with a friend. You know, these kind of things are, are really just necessary for a psychotherapist. And, and I'll, I'll say one last thing is in my profession, in where, I'm, where I work from out of Ontario, there's something called the safe and effective use of self. That means it's, it's, it's almost, in a way, it's saying like, it's almost guaranteed that you're going to have some sort of vicarious trauma through doing the kind of work you do emotionally, physically, thought-wise. If you didn't, you'd be superhero and you're not. You're all human doing this job. And so it's very important that you allow for that space and time to be routine, you know, wake up at a certain time every day, go to bed every time every day, do your workouts, eat properly, but also have some creative expression where you don't necessarily need to think so hard. So you can recharge and be useful for your clients. That's fabulous. I, I'm going to ask everyone the same final question each time. Is there something that you would have liked to have known before you got into psychotherapy that would have helped you along? Or is there some tips that you can give to a listener that would think of going down the same um, professional route? Have an identity outside profession, right? Like... If I, I like video games, be a gamer and really enjoy it. If you're a reader, read. If you like music, music. Know all the musicians. Have an identity. Have an experience. Have a have a world. Have a hobby. Have a have a have a. And be proud of it. And be proud of it. Be be engaged and find meaning and enjoyment in that thing. Um, find a community in that. I think I was so my life was so difficultly traumatizing that all I could do was think about building profession and identity and being the best i have to be really good at this and because it required safety financially emotionally all that stuff i just think it would have been beneficial to also have something else you know the thing that you would retire into right the thing that you would do if you didn't if you didn't have your profession so that's one thing i would say to myself and that that goes back to self-care and all that stuff like you should have an identity that's not your site that's not your profession and so I guess that goes for people who are entering the profession, particularly those who are queer or trans or Muslims or South Indo-South Asian, I don't know, whatever. And I think looking back now, I, I, I did, but never gave myself the label because we're so busy working on the economics of my, economic stability of my life. But Netflix is not a hobby, I think. Is it a hobby? What do you think it is? It's not a hobby, right? No. 
I love watching TV. Like I really did. We watched movies, we watched Bollywood, Hollywood, and loved it all. Um, but I think something a bit more active, social. I mean, maybe movie, movie going was really fun. I love going to movies. But oh, me too. But yeah, I'm not sure if it's necessarily a hobby. Cinema is fun. I think it it can be a bit of a hobby when you're a bit pretentious about it. Yeah. You know, like I went and saw the new Scorsese. Yeah. Didn't like it. Yeah. It's not like his stuff from the seventies. Look, you, you know, know, and you're like, you were born in the nineties. <laughs> But there's something to be said about the art form of, of cinema and film mm-hmm. rather than Avengers. No offense, Avengers. But, like, you know, there's something to say about Casablanca and all the other. Oh, I love movies. that. These, you know, black and white films in India. I love them. You know, we used to watch them. And I, and I, and I remember asking my dad once, like, who's your favorite? Like, who's your favorite actress? And he, he would say, um, Nargis. And he would say, because he reminds me of your mother. And I'd be like, really? That's great, Mom. Dad, what a good answer. And, you know, romance. My father was a romantic guy. Like father, like son. I hope so. So, Sammy. Dennis. Thanks very much for talking to me today. I'm really grateful that you took the time to speak to me, but what you've said today will actually be really informative and helpful to a lot of people that are thinking of going into a similar profession like yourself or even just considering it. I think... uh, You're an inspiration. Aw, Dennis. Thank you for having me.